0: Huh. Anyways, we have talked about, as we're going through Revelation, that Revelation is really not a complicated book. And, it, and it's not if you understand one thing primarily, and that is that this book is the book of Revelation singular. And In chapter 1, verse 1, it, it introduces the book as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, then everything else falls into place. Because this is not a book of revelations, plural. This is not a book primarily about who is the Antichrist, or what does the end of the world look like, or what does the number 666 mean, or what are all these plagues, and and, you know, when the moon turns red, is that a blood moon, and what happens if you get four of them in a row, and one of them is over Jerusalem, and it's not any of those things. It's Jesus Christ is going to reveal himself. And he wrote this book as a part of that. And if you understand that, then the book becomes vastly simpler to understand. Because at any point in time, you can say, you know what? I don't know exact, I may not know the exact specifics of what this will look like when it's fulfilled, but I know one thing, and that's that it will be for the revelation of Jesus Christ. It will be for the sake and purpose of Jesus Christ glorifying himself. And so within that, we understand that, you know, the book is basically divided into three parts. There's, in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, the Lord tells John, write what you've seen. That's all the things leading up to that point in the book. And then things which are, and that's the idea of the church age. The time and place at which the Holy Spirit will primarily work on the earth through the church. And then there's the period after that, which we know is the Great Tribulation. It's seven years of judgment on earth. And during that time, we talked about that the Lord is going to push the earth into two extremes. And by the end of the Great Tribulation, there will be no one who is indifferent to the gospel. There will be exactly two kinds of people on earth. There will be those who say, I will follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. And those who say, I will not follow Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. And at the end of that period of time, the armies of the earth will gather themselves together to make war against God and all of their arrogance and pride and God will come down and destroy the armies. And he'll set up a millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign on earth. And we'll get a chance to experience earth as it was intended to be under the leadership and the headship of Christ. And tonight, where we go, at the end of that period of time, there's there's a judgment of souls and those who aren't written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire, and then those whose names are found written in the book of life. The people who have believed in Jesus Christ then, in essence, get to enter into Revelation 21. And so that's where we find ourselves tonight. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So... The idea is it's all new. And and with that, it's important to just understand this right as we get into the outset. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the old one passed away. The old one is really not fit for the full presence of God to dwell on forever. It's been too corrupted. The earth itself is too stained with blood, too corrupted with sin to to be a permanent home for God. And so there's going to be a new one. The presence of God, it says that at his presence, the earth and heaven fled away in the end of chapter 20, and now there's a new one coming. And this is a place that we will get to experience where we, this is where we will live. This is what we refer to as heaven. When we say, oh, we're going to be in heaven with the Lord forever, what we're really referring to is we'll be on the new earth with him forever. And so don't get too trippy about it, but understand a couple things, and that is that because this is new, we have very little understanding of what he's talking about in some of these things. Because everything about how we understand the world today is based on how we understand the laws of physics uh, that operate within this world, okay? But those are all laws of physics that God created when he created this world, right? God is not bound by physics. God created physics. God is not bound by mathematics. He created mathematics. He's not bound by logic. He created logic. And so when the old heaven and earth pass away and God creates a new heaven and new earth, there's no rule in the scripture that says he has to conform to the old laws of physics. He can just make new ones, right? He, I mean, we understand, you know, on earth, you know, there's certain, there's certain fixed things, right? Like we understand the acceleration of the earth. And, and if you take physics, you know, there's, there's acceleration, there's the speed of sound, there's the speed of light. These things that we hold as like fixed, you know, immutable, irrefutable things. But they're only that way because the Lord maintains them. So there's nothing to say that uh, anything on the new heaven and earth is going to be tied to our present reality. And I say that just because when we're looking at this, you know, we've talked about as we go through prophecy, it's important to say here's what we know, here's what we think, here's what we speculate. There are certain truths we know. This book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the church is going to be with Jesus Christ in that place. We know that. Some of the details and the particulars, no, we don't know. But that's okay, because what's the book about? It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so yes, there may be some spots tonight where we say, having a little bit of a hard time picturing it in my mind. That's okay. When we get there, we'll say, oh, that's what he meant. I, you know, <laughs> That's what I was thinking he meant the whole time. I just didn't want to embarrass anybody else, you know? Also, John says, verse one, there was no more sea. And every, as I listen this week, every pastor who's in California has to make a joke about surfers in heaven i don't know why i was like i really don't care if there's no sea like i don't surf i'm not going deep sea fishing but in some form or other the new earth will not have a sea some people say and again this is where we're just looking right out of the gate i guess uh some people say obviously this is a literal there's no more sea i think that's quite possible some people say the sea in scripture is references. this is where god throws our sins The Old Testament refers to the fact that God cast our sins into the sea, and so it may just be the idea that there is no place where your sins are in this earth. You know, when you think about just, we understand kind of inherently, we we understand the sea is is sort of a a dark place. We understand there there are things down there, and we don't know what they are, and we're kind of glad that they're down there, and we'd rather not come up here, right? Like, the sea is just a little bit intimidating to a lot of people. And, and imagine a world where there's, there's, no, there's no place of night terrors. There's no place of, of monsters in the closet or under the bed or down the alley, right? The, earth won't, the new earth won't have those places. Then verse 2, John say, he says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people." God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And so John sees the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And he's trying to describe a city, and the best metaphor he can come up with is that it's like a bride. It's so pure and and so full of joy in the moment and so excited to be in the presence of God that this city looks like a bride. And the idea, as he's describing this, is when the city comes down, the city is the dwelling place for the church. And it's where every believer who has known Jesus Christ is going to get to dwell. And in that place, he says, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. There's an idea throughout, really, all of the Old Testament, and it carries over into the New Testament as well, and that is that, you know, when the Israelites received the plans from God for here's how you build the tabernacle, here's how you build the Holy of Holies, here's how you build... The Ark of the Covenant. God talks about these are things I revealed to you on the mountain. And there's an idea that these are the shadows. Right? The temple was not the real temple. It was the temple on earth. It was, you know, because it says throughout Scripture, you know, heaven can't hold you. How much more could a temple hold you? And the idea is that everything that's ever been built on earth, for the worship and glory of God, is a shadow of the real one. Right? The new heaven and the new earth are going to be, if you will, the real heaven and real earth. Right now, everything is, is just a shadow of its future glory. And so the real Jerusalem comes out down onto the new earth as, part of, as the real tabernacle, the dwelling place of God with his people. And there'll be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Imagine that. Imagine a world with no pain. You don't even have the mental faculty really to comprehend it. I don't it defines so much of our world. But God says it's not, it's, you won't know what it is in the, in the new heaven, and the new earth. Verse 5, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. God says, I am making everything new. And then he says, write it down. So presumably, John is so in awe that he forgets to write it down. And the Lord's like, hey, John, psst, yeah, keep writing, write, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. And he said to me, verse six, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. (coughs) He says, it is done. And it's interesting because, you know, in essence, this is, in some ways, this is Genesis 1 revisited. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and here we're told that God's making a new heaven and a new earth. But this time he says it's done. This time there's not going to be a fall. You know, we have Genesis 1, and it's wonderful, but then we have Genesis 3. And from there on out, it's, it's, it's the plan of God getting it back to a point of Genesis 1. But actually with more depth because it's a richer experience that we're going to get to have because we understand now the sacrifice that it took to bring us there, right? We can, David Guzik talks about sometimes we can think that, oh, Eden was perfect and, and the best thing we could have ever done would have been to stay there. And he's not discrediting that, but he says also there a, there's a, will be a greater reality for us because Eden was a gift from God. But the New Earth is going to be the gift that God paid for with his blood, and we'll have the ability to comprehend it at a deeper level, which means we'll understand the scope of the gift of God for us that much deeper. But he says, it's done. It's finished. And he says, it's finished. And if and I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. There's a couple food references here. And, and people talk about, well, wait a second. You know, we won't need food. But there's food in heaven. And again, it's one of those deals where I don't know how it works. That's, I don't know. But... Presumably, to some capacity or another, we won't need food, but we'll have the ability to eat it as a means of enjoying the gifts that God gave us. He gave us taste. And presumably, there will be an opportunity to enjoy taste in heaven. But he says, I'll give the water of life freely to him who thirsts. There's water that's so holy, it gives life. And he says it's a free gift. And you think about it, and the idea here is the concept of salvation, and people will argue sometimes, well, you know, do you have to do anything to be saved? Well, no, you don't have to do anything, but you have to accept, and that's kind of like doing something, so you still kind of have to do something to be saved, right? And, and it's just these like stupid theological arguments. But here's what you have to do to be saved. Imagine a person who's dying of thirst, and somebody hands them a glass of water. What do they have to do if they don't want to die of thirst? They've got to drink it. Now, they didn't do anything, right? But they received it, they drank it. You, you do have the capacity right there to slap the glass out of the person's hand. You have an opportunity to make a choice. And he says, I'm offering you the, the water of life right here. If you're thirsty, if your soul is thirsty, understand as we read this passage, the water of life is being offered to you. God says, I am willing to refresh you with life. Not just with sustenance, not with strength, with life. With a vitality that you can't even comprehend. I am willing to give that to you if you are willing to drink it. It is a free gift, but if you do not want it, if you, if you defy it, I do not want the water of God, that is an option that you have. You have the right to slap that cup out of God's hand if you desire. But understand that that means something. <clears throat> that means you are choosing. You're choosing to die of thirst, in essence. You're choosing to have a part in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone with everyone else who's ever rejected the Lord. And we'll see it tonight a couple times. Hell is still reality. We read about heaven, and it's wonderful. And we read about hell, and we think, wow, how do these, how do these happen together? And I, it's important to understand, you know, the Lord says, I make all things new. He says, it's done. He says, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow. Our ability to comprehend the pain of hell is not eternal. When we are in heaven, when we are on the new earth, We will not have this guilty conscience effect of, oh, well, what about all the people who aren't there? No, that's something that God gives to us now. That's something we have the ability to understand and hurt for now. We will not always have the ability to weep for those who choose to be lost. And that's not to say that that's not to diminish the greatness of heaven, it's actually to emphasize it. But understand if you read about a passage of hell and you think, wow, that's heavy, yes, it's meant to be heavy. Because the Lord wants it to stir us up. He wants us to be excited about heaven and concerned about hell. Not in the sense that we are concerned about going there. Anyone who's believed in Jesus Christ has their place in heaven. But he wants us to have a burden for the lost and for the people around us. And so we are given both side by side. The new earth, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow. But for those who refuse to drink the water of life, there is a lake that burns with fire. Then he goes on in verse 9. He says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates. The names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. So the New Jerusalem is where the bride dwells. The bride, the Lamb's bride. Who is the Lamb's bride? It's the church. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ. New Jerusalem is the place where anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ is going to dwell. And it says he showed him the great city descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And he describes, he says, you know, her light is like a precious stone, so it's evidently emanating light. And he says there's 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, it's interesting, the church never replaced Israel. The church is, is the doors to Christianity, the doors to Christ are thrown open, but we still walk through the legacy of what God did in the Old Testament. We walk through the 12 tribes of Israel, in essence. And so these 12 gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel because we are always going to remember that we, especially as non-Jewish people who believe in Jesus Christ, we were brought in. We were adopted into the family of God. We don't, you know, remember, we don't belong, right? We aren't in heaven because it's our right and we deserve it. We are actually outsiders who God loved and brought in. And so we'll, we'll, we'll live with that reality, And just be amazed constantly at the goodness and the gift of God. Verse 15. And he who talked with me, that's the angel, had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So he measures it. He's got a golden measuring stick. He says, All right, let's just, you know, hey, while I'm showing you, let's do a quick little survey here. How big is it? Well, it's 12,000 furlongs. That's 1,500 miles, roughly. So this city, we're told it's 1,500 miles long, wide, and tall. And people argue, well, is it a cube or is it a pyramid? I really don't care. By the time you're 1,500 miles up in the air, you're pretty high up. But understand what that is. That's basically Madison, Indiana to Salt Lake City, Utah. Utah. I've never driven that far in one stretch. I really don't want to. That's a long ways. You can drive all the way to Salt Lake City, and that's the edge. And you drive the same distance all the way down, and you're halfway around the border. Right? This is a big city. This is built to hold all the saints. And incidentally, and this is where, you know, we talk about what we know, what we speculate. This is unashamed speculation here, okay? And I'm just going to level, level with you. But if the Lord builds a city that's 1,500 miles high, I don't really think it's just so we can walk around on the ground and say, yep, it's up there, all right. I, I seriously speculate, and it's, it's just speculation. And if you disagree, you're probably right. And I, I don't care. But I do think it's interesting that, like, every human being has always wanted to fly. You know, it's, it's, I was listening to a thing this week, it's like one of the universal dreams across cultures and languages and religions is people have dreams about flying. And I just kind of wonder, huh, maybe, just maybe, we were made for an earth where we can fly and, you know, multi-layered dwellings, 1,500 miles up, and you just keep going and then go back down and you just, you know, do your thing. I don't know, it's it's strictly speculation, but I just enjoy the heck out of the thought that I might be able to fly someday. Verse 17, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. So angels and men use the same tape measures. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundation of the walls of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire. The third, Chalcedony. The fourth, Emerald. The fifth, sardonyx; The sixth, Sardius. The seventh, chrysolite; The eighth, Beryl. The ninth, Topaz. The tenth, Chrysoprase. The eleventh, Jacinth. And the twelfth, Amethyst. I have no idea if I pronounced those right or not. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So here again, we understand that there are some things that we just, frankly, don't comprehend. Because John's trying to describe it to us. He says, the, street, the, seat, the Sorry, the city... It's like gold. And we say, oh, okay. I mean, I've seen gold. Kind of my head around it. He says, yeah, just like pure glass. We say, wait a second, I've seen gold. And I've seen clear glass. And they don't look like each other. And John's like, yes, but that's what Jerusalem looks like. And we say, "Uh uh-huh. Try it one more time. He says, yeah, he does, because he says at the top and bottom. He says the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. It's gold, but it's... You know, clear glass. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I have no idea. I have no idea, but when we get there, we're gonna, you know what you know, going to say? That's what you meant. Yeah, it's like golden glass, totally. Why didn't you say so? Verse 22, he says, But I saw no temple in it. This is important. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, I saw no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now think about this. Throughout history, and really across across religions, there's always been an understanding that we need a holy place to go and meet with God. And that's really for two reasons, and if you will, because we've understood that you needed to go to God, or try to, but also that you needed to leave certain things behind, right? And then even if you think about in your mind, certain, you know, if there's a maybe a conference you attended one time, or a very just significant encounter with the Lord that you've had in your life. You could tie it to a specific place, oftentimes. And there's specific memories associated maybe with that building or that center or that campground, whatever. But there's a, there's a sense where oftentimes those, those moments on earth happen because we are setting aside time to not only pursue God, but also to avoid certain distractions. Right? We go somewhere to be with the Lord. And we understand the Holy Spirit is with us constantly we also understand that we are so distractible that we have a need to set aside time and, and pursue the Lord more intentionally. But do you understand what this means? That there's no temple. It means there's no, there's no, you don't go to the holy place. You don't go to the holy site because everywhere you are is holy. Everywhere you are is in the presence of God. There is no sense in which it's like, well, you know, I gotta get ready for church, I gotta go to church, I gotta go get through church, I gotta go home. No, no. Every moment of your existence, in effect, will be at church, will be in the presence of God. And he says also that the lamb is its light. This one, I like simply because it's just super big and I like big ideas that I don't fully comprehend. But think about this. And I'm just gonna preface it by saying there are artsy people in the world and scientific people in the world. I live on the artsy side, which means if I say anything scientifically incorrect here, it's nothing personal. But when we see something in the world, what we see really is the reflection of light off of that surface. Right? If you want to get super, super technical, I don't see any of you guys right now. My brain is, is building an image based on the light that's coming off of you. right? And that's why you know, right now we're under fluorescence. You all have a certain tone. If we were all outside... Everybody would be just a little bit of, you know, a shade of color different. If we were outside at night, it'd be different. If you are outside and the moon was out, it'd be a little bit different. Right? The, the, the light changes how I see you. But what happened, and, and it's basically, it reflects off of you, and it reflects back to me, and my brain puts the image together. What happens when Jesus Christ is the light? All of a sudden, all I can see of you is where it reflects back through Jesus Christ. Right? So imagine a world where all I can see of you is what Jesus has done in your life. All I can see is Christ. I can't see any of your flaws. You won't have them at that point. I can't see any of your imperfections. You won't have them at that point. But all I'm capable of comprehending is through Jesus Christ. What reflects off of you and the image that then He then forms in my mind is going to be all through Christ. What would that be like? I have no clue. Right, I have no clue on earth what that'll be like. But about understand as we're reading this, you know, sometimes people get a little bit. Of, people ask dumb questions about heaven. You know, like, will there be ice cream there? Will there be puppies there? Will I recognize people? You know what? You're gonna have eternity to work your way through that whole city, which means you probably have time to meet people. Probably have time to meet people. You know? I don't know. It might be that some people you know are so sanctified by Jesus Christ that you have a hard time recognizing them. But imagine a world where I can't know you in the context of your sins. I can only know you in the context of what Jesus Christ did. Those are the kind of friends I want to have, right? That's why Jesus can say there's not marriage in heaven and it's not a loss. It's a gain. Because you no longer need physical intimacy as a way of bonding two sinners together as part of the plan of God to, to celebrate what was lost in Eden, There's so much holiness that there's no need for. it. It's not that heaven is going to be less than marriage. It's heaven is going to be so much better than marriage. Heaven's not less than anything. It's higher and better to a capacity that we can't even comprehend right now. Or even the light itself. You know, think about how much of this earth we take for granted based on the fact that we have light. The light itself is Jesus Christ. Reflecting and Shining that's what the new heaven and new earth are going to be like. Chapter 22. He says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and on the Lamb. In the middle of its street, so the river is somehow a street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So this is, again, where some people try and imagine it and you can try, you can do whatever you want, but there's a river of life, there's a tree of life, and the tree is on both sides of the river. Usually trees are on one side or the other, but this tree is on both sides. So is that like, you know, just a giant bridge tree thing? It's entirely possible, right? Is it that there's like, if the, the tree could be referencing a grove of trees? That's possible, I, I really have no idea. The tree bears 12 different fruits. and says so they're for the healing of the nations, that doesn't mean that the nations will be sick. The word healing is, is the same word where we get the idea of, uh, it's the same word in Greek from which we get the word therapy. In essence, it's for like the, you know, the enjoying the fellowship of God. It's, it's for drawing us closer, for just constantly letting us experience more and more and more of who the Lord is. Verse 3: three, three, And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You think about some of the promises that are just in those couple verses. Three verses. There's no more curse. There's no more earth marked by sin can't wait to see that. They shall see his face. You know, Moses, we're told, talked with God more directly than any other man, and Moses wasn't able to see the face of God. And we'll be able to look at the face of God. His name will be on our foreheads. We will never have a question about whose ownership we're under. Right, we, we wrestle sometimes right now. We, we struggle, you know, we want to walk in victory, but we, we struggle with sin. It's like, oh, am I really saved? Am I serving the Lord? Am I not? There will be no question in heaven, if you are Jesus Christ or not. It'll be stamped right on your forehead. Which, yeah, anyways. There'll be no night there. You think about, you know, just think about the the amount of sin that happens when the sun goes down. Think about the amount of wickedness that you could specifically tie to time of day. Right? Think about just the number, if there was no night on this earth, How many murders wouldn't happen? How many drug deals wouldn't happen? How many rapes wouldn't happen? How many assaults wouldn't happen? How many fights wouldn't happen? Night is is inherently what we're all kind of scared of, right? Even if you enjoy, you know, yes, I enjoy a beautiful night. When the moon's out and I get to kind of see the world, you know, and watch the stars, yes. But that's not really, I think, the night that the Lord's talking about. There's, 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 There's nothing under the bed. There's nothing scary in this place. There's no dark alleys in heaven, right? There's nothing creepy here. This is just pure holiness, pure joy. This is where sometimes people say, like, "Oh, heaven sounds boring." No, it doesn't. I am I am looking forward to a world where there's nothing to terrify me, right? I mean, I, I I think that'll be rather enjoyable. I don't find my, I don't picture myself getting bored of that ever. Right, The idea that there's no sin, I can, I can handle that. No pain, no curse, see the face of God forever and ever. Yeah, this is not a, this is not a boring place to go. Boredom is a sin for what it's worth. Boredom is I have no, no, nothing in this moment with which to thank God for. You will never run out of things to thank God for in heaven. So you will never be bored. Verse 6, then he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So he says, These words are faithful and true. This is going to happen. This is real. This is not mythology. This is not wishful thinking. This isn't what we hope is going to happen. This is true. This is real. This is what's really real. There are a lot of other illusions in this world that feel real, but this is what's real. And then Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the person who obeys, who keeps the words of this prophecy. And then John, John is just overcome, which is probably understandable. I've never been to heaven. I've never talked with one of the angels who poured out one of the seven bowls of wrath. I'm going to cut him some slack and say, not sure that I would have done much better. But John falls down and starts to worship the angel. because he's just so collectively overwhelmed by all the glory and everything he's experiencing. And the angel says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, not me, buddy. You worship Christ. Because in heaven, guess what? We'll be in the fullness of Christ, but we will have no desire to compete with Christ. We will all be delighted to give him the glory. And then the angel says, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. That's really interesting. And in Daniel, Daniel receives a prophecy uh, and the angel tells him, seal up the words of this prophecy until the end. Like this prophecy is not gonna make much sense until you get close to the end. But the angel tells John, don't seal this book up. This book is not meant to be a mystery. And that's part of why I try and teach it as simply as I can, because the Lord says this book is not a mystery. The book is actually pretty simple. It's about one thing, right? It's about the what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. This book explains that pretty clearly. Is this book a closed book? Is it impossible to understand? If you can understand that Jesus Christ is coming, you can understand this book. Verse eleven, he was unjust; let him be unjust still. He was filthy; let him be filthy still. He was righteous; let him be righteous still. He who is holy; let him be holy still. It's a kind of it feels like an odd passage, but it's not. In this moment, the angel saying, "Okay, you know what? Just do whatever you want to do." It's not, "Hey, you know what? Whatever, heaven, hell, whatever." That's not what he's saying. But the idea, I think, is much more. You know what? If this hasn't moved you, what will? If you haven't been stirred up by this, what is going to move you? And that's true specifically of the book of Revelation, I guess, but of, of the entire Bible overall. If this hasn't seized your heart, what will? If this hasn't revealed truth to you, what will? If this hasn't made you desire to know Christ, what will? If this hasn't given you a burden for the lost, what will? If you can walk away from listening to the Scripture and say, you know what, I'd rather be unjust I'd rather be filthy. That's your prerogative. You have the ability to do that. But if you're hoping, if you're just, you know, if you're, if you're stalling, so we'll all soften later. I'll get right with the Lord when it's time or when I'm older or whenever, whatever else. No, you won't. When the Lord presents an opportunity, it's an opportunity. Opportunities don't last forever. And if you listen to the Word of God and just harden your heart, it gets a little harder the next time. It's a little harder the next time. The word of God is not ignored without consequence. So he says, if this hasn't moved you, what will? Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. He's reminding us again. And my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city, but outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So again, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the Greek, sort of their A and their Z, the first and the last letters. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly and everything is about me. Everything is central to who I am. If you don't understand who Jesus Christ is centrally in your life, you don't understand anything else. But if you understand who Jesus Christ is, you understand everything else you need. And he says that, Blessed are those who do his commandments. There's a blessing for anyone who obeys the word of God. And they have the right to the tree of life. They may enter into the gates of the city of the new Jerusalem. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral. I don't think he's saying... It'd be inconsistent with the rest of scripture. He's not saying that basically we'll all be in Jerusalem and there'll be people you know, kind of knocking on the gates like, hey, can you let us in? Like, nope, sorry. It's just the idea of you're not gonna be able to come into the presence of God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the beginning and the end. He's the first thing you seek and the last thing you seek. What's, what's the most basic truth a Christian needs to comprehend to be saved? Jesus Christ loved me and died for me and rose again. What's the most complex, profound you know, truth philosophically, theologically, religiously? What's the most profound thing you could ever come up with in Christianity? Jesus Christ loves me. And he died and rose again. Right? It, it, it's, it's at the same time the most basic and most profound thing we could ever experience. And Jesus says that's what you need to come in to this city. You don't need anything else. You just need Jesus Christ. Verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears, that's every one of us tonight, say, come. And on him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The Holy Spirit and the church are both excited for Jesus to come back. Anybody who hears this ought to be Excited for Jesus Christ to come back. And anybody who's thirsty, he says, come and take the water of life freely. There is no charge to this. This is not a game where we get you in the door and then get your money. This is, you know what? You can have the water of life freely. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Everything else centers around that. I am not interested in your money. I'm interested in your soul. Because I want you to know Jesus Christ. Personally. And that's what this is all about. So verse 18, he says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. No pressure to anybody who teaches the book of Revelation, right? I mean, ah! <laughs> um, but I understand the idea here. God expects his people to read, to understand, and to obey this book. So shame on any church or pastor or Christian who says, you know what? It's just a little too complicated. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, It's a closed book. Who could understand it anyways? The Lord says, you know what? The Lord writes this book with an expectation that you are going to read it and understand it and obey it. He takes his word pretty seriously. The Lord did not write his word down so we could walk around and say, well, I wish God would just speak to me. He wrote his word down so we could hear his voice because he wants to have a relationship with us. In verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. In essence, you know, Revelation 22 is really a three-point sermon from Jesus, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. That's how he sums up the book. I'm coming. And John, writing now, says, amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. John's writing, and you've got to imagine, if he's writing this down by hand, I bet they're big letters, and I bet they're not super fancy. I bet they're big and sloppy. You know, come, Lord Jesus. I don't know if they had exclamation marks in Greek, but I'm, if they did, it's right there. right? And then he says, verse 21, the last verse of the Bible, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Isn't that an awesome way to end the word of God? Jesus Christ says, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and last. If you are thirsty, come and drink. And John says, yeah, may the grace of God be with you all. You know, in Titus chapter three, as Paul's writing, he's writing to Titus, a young pastor And chapter 3, verse 4, says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, When Jesus came, he washed us. And the, according, through the Holy Spirit, abundantly through Jesus Christ, that having been justified by his grace, that through that grace, that gift, grace, grace is a gift that you did not deserve. Through that gift, you may be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says he washed us by the Holy Spirit. We didn't get a cup of the water of life. We got dunked in it. Right? The Lord is offering to just pick you up and just throw you in the river of life. And in essence, drowning in the river of life makes you come alive. Just drown in the grace of God. And and so, in that idea, he says, okay, the grace of God saved us and is making us heirs of the eternal promise, the hope of eternal life. And John, as he's wrapping up his book, says, you know what? That be with you. That grace, that gift that you did not deserve, you did not earn, but that was freely offered to you, not because it didn't cost God something. It costs God his life. But it doesn't cost you anything except to take it and drink it. John says, That be with you. May you go out of here, John says, and I would say to each one of us, may you go out of here with your thirst quenched. May you go out of here knowing that you have access to the water of life freely. May you go out aware of the gift. Taking it seriously, it is a gift. And there's a responsibility with every gift. You've got to take it and open it. Or else it's a wasted gift. But may each one of us take the gift, open it, drink of it freely. And then live and obey the words that are in it. And while we wait, the Spirit and the bride, you know what we say? Come. So Lord, come quickly. We cannot wait. We cannot wait to see you. We cannot wait to experience a world like what you've told us about. We don't have the the capacity to even imagine it, but we still cannot wait. It's the home we were made for. And so we do pray that you would come quickly. But as we do pray that, Lord, we remember that Peter told us that the patience of God is salvation. And that as you wait, there are people who need to be saved who you are reaching out to. And so we pray that you would come quickly, but while we wait, we pray that you would send us out. Pray that you would fill us up with a desire not to, to meet our own needs or attain our own ends, but a desire to see the kingdom of God glorified. God, there's plenty of room in New Jerusalem. We want to see as many people as possible there. And so we pray. You told us to pray that you would send laborers into the harvest, and we pray that you would send us out as laborers into the harvest. God, even as we believe that you're coming very soon, that it's getting very close, God, we do not know how much time we have left. It could be any time. It could be this year. It could be this week. It could be tonight. But Lord, while we wait, burden us with urgency. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to fight not in our own strength, but in your strength. Go out before us, Lord, Guide us and lead us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our coming King, that we pray. Amen.